Hello fellow homebrewers, JP here, and I want to introduce to you the brand new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Series available at More Beer. More Beer sells the highest standard in homebrewing equipment, and the Brewbuilt Conicals are just that. They're made from mere polished 304 stainless steel, and they come with loads of features that you and I have been looking for. They have a full 2-inch bottom dump valve, which will eliminate your clogging issues, while the sturdy base includes four reinforced legs, just like those big pro tanks do. More Beer also carries the Brewbuilt line of options and add-ons like casters, pressure kits, and even external glycol chillers. So you can find out more about the new Brewbuilt X1 Conical Unitanks by going over to morebeer.com for detailed videos on the entire line of Brewbuilt Conicals. You can trust Brewbuilt with your next fermentation, and you can trust More Beer to find the right conical for you. Brewbuilt at morebeer.com. Great beer is about drinkability. Doesn't matter the style. You guys are like walking beer Wikipedia. That's the first time that you've ever accepted me as a person. Or you have a fermentation in your gut. I'm jet propelled at all times. (laughs) How many guys do you think that you have the privilege to slap? Somebody who's never tasted a commercial example. And this is how you know everything about this beer? Please, you don't. I think that's bullshit. (laughs) I think it's bullshit, too. Wow. Are you guys going to arm wrestle? No. No. We're going to teabag fight. You heard of Junkyard Wars? Can I get another high five? Now, live from the Brewing Network Studios in Northern California, this is the radio program for home brewers, craft brewers, beer lovers, and beer geeks. It's your only source for live beer radio that brings expert brewers together with, well, expert drinkers. This is the radio program with a head on it. This is The Session. Hey, welcome everybody. It's another episode of The Session. Uh, With me today, my steadfast, dependent co-host, young man, Sean O'Sullivan. You are here all the time now, and I appreciate you very much for doing that. I like the fact you said dependent and not codependent. I think that that's a good thing in our relationship that we've gone beyond that. Yeah, well, uh, you know, our therapist says that we shouldn't call each other that anymore. So I feel like... We said we weren't going to talk about that on the air. (laughs) And you said you weren't going to use the therapist as ammunition against me in therapy. Wow, damn. (laughs) I mind a vein right there. Are you all right, Sully? No, I just talk about about that, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sully's uh, here, and he's going to help me navigate this show because we're going to be speaking Uh with the great Dave McLean from Admiral Maltings, and uh, formerly of uh, Magnolia Brewing in San Francisco. And uh, Dave is here uh, again. It's been, I think it was 2013, Dave, since you were last on the show. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Really? Welcome back. Yeah, I think so. If, If our. If our archive on the website is, uh, you know, is accurate, if you type in Dave McLean, you get um, a show from 2009 where we talked about cask beer, and then oh, 2013 that. when uh, when we talked about, uh, you know, just straight up Magnolia. Well, weren't you on the show doing Admiral though at one point? I don't know, honestly. I think weren't you on with Ron? We might have been on one together. Yeah, I think you were. 
Let's argue about that. <laughs> Let's take some time out for that. Let's just yeah. take 15 minutes and just grill on that, uh, grind on that for a bit. Uh, look, I'll take the next week. I'll listen to every episode between a certain date and a certain date, and then I will let you guys know. Sounds it could be on the, it could be the lost episode. <laughs> the very <laughs> lost episode. The get lost episode. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so we're going to be chatting a little bit about, uh, well, a lot about craft malt. Um, you know, craft malting, what, uh, what Dave's doing, uh, over there in, uh, in Alameda and then, uh, Sully, whatever else we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the state of the industry. We're going to have a real big powwow. It's going to be a very deep conversational episode. We've got a five hour show. That's well. Wow. I didn't tell you it's 24 hours now. I extended it. We're just, we're live streaming all day and all night, um, to raise money for, Something I don't know. Let it's me like read what? a recipe now. <laughs> like an all night fish set. Yeah. Theory uh, on bread had to, making. Had to work a fish reference in. <laughs> we'll be talking about Meg Gill and Golden Road. Hey, whoa. Oh, here we go. There we go. No, so Dave, uh, thanks, man. I appreciate you coming back on. Um, you know, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a good time here. I haven't personally used any of your your malt yet, but I do know people who have, and they they swear by it, and it's sort of I, I I feel like craft malting caught me personally off guard because, you know, I'm like super, you know, deep into 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 the beer world. Not really. But I feel like if making beer is hard, I sort of feel like malting, <laughs> like malting is even harder. What what got you into into starting a, a craft malting, you know, company? I, I think that uh, Curtis, one of the, my business partners and, and our head maltster would agree with you. That uh, it might be that making malt is harder than making beer. Um, it's also true that you know craft malt is in its infancy, and, and we're sort of writing a lot of the rules and, and figuring out the instructions as it goes. Um, I mean, we've we've made numerous mistakes so far, and, and you know they've all been recoverable. But you know, it's it's been a learning process. I, I kind of equate it to. I mean, it's, it feels you know like when Sean and I started our breweries in the late '90s, early 2000s. There was already a, a good decade plus of, of other brewers we could turn to for input. Yeah. Um, and I'll answer your question in a second. I'm sorry. But I'm just diverging by saying that, you know, I imagine this is maybe more what it was like uh, when, for those brewers who, in the 80s and early 90s who were really like there weren't too many people to turn to. Right. And like that's been our case. Like we're like, I don't know. We, you know, we, we think we know. I mean, Curtis is an amazing maltster. He really knows what he's doing. And um uh, so he and Ron both attended uh, a, a, a course, and, and, and Curtis has spent a lot of time like learning innumerable stuff. But um, but you know, it's a, it's a, it's not the same as like when even when we could go check out each other's breweries and be like, hey, how'd you deal with this thing, or what, how do we, where, where, where does this go? Yeah. Um, it's not like that. So yet so far, you know, in craft malt, uh, it's a lot of just feels kind of a little bit of the bleeding edge, and. Um, <laughs> We're, that, we're cutting ourselves a lot and learning as we go. Nice. Is, that be, is that because, I mean, there's a lot of literature out there on malting, but, you know, there's brewing schools that, you know, have whole courses on it and there's huge malsters. So I imagine there's a lot of, you know, scientific papers and, you know, literature on it. Is it right. because it's more, that's more geared towards large malting you know, facilities and operations mm-hmm. rather than what you're doing and specifically what you're doing, which is floor malting? Maybe, but I don't. Yeah, I mean, floor malting is was something that almost fell by the wayside, right? Floor malting is virtually made obsolete, and then it's it's now something that's kind of coming back into favor. But um, there certainly is, has not been a lot of scientific you know, inquiry into floor malting because nobody that funds 
research having a need for that that knowledge, right? Um, but a lot of it too is just like you know, imagine trying to start a brewery based on Master Brewing Association technical quarterly articles, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's like it's there's more to it than than uh, than the science. There's just the day to day practicality of it. It's like those little things that you learn when you're when you're first setting up your own brewery. You know, you're like how much to crack a valve or like when to do this or that or whatever. It's like that stuff. There's not a handbook for that. There's not like an yeah. operator's manual. Um, <laughs> that's just done by like hopefully being a good brewer and, 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 and learning and trial and error. So like, a lot of, a lot of you know, creating a, a mall house seems to follow a similar path where it's just like figure some stuff out. I mean, we've made some, you know, some mistakes that were, that were huge and some that were tiny. Um, and, and I don't know that we could have done any better without having just done those things and made those mistakes. Yeah. What was your, what's a big mistake? Give me an example because for me, it's the biggest mistake. Yeah. I have no, I I have no idea what that would be. Yeah. Please do. I think I know this one actually. Uh, you know, we, we just, we, you know, we have these two, so we're floor malting as you know, um, hopefully maybe not everybody knows, but we know we're, we're following the traditional method of, of germinating on the floor, you know, just to back up a second, you know, malting is three steps. It's steeping it, germinating it and killing the grain. And, um, and so that middle step germination, that's the, that's the step where, where barley or whatever grain you're malting modifies and becomes malted barley or malted oats or malted rye. Um, so that happens on this, on the germination floor. Um, just like it, you know, you see in the photos and, and you know, if you've ever visited like crisp or, or foster, some of those the old floor maltings in, in the UK, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're spreading out on a really thin layer, spreading the grain on a thin layer, uh, because it's alive. It's, it's, uh, it's producing heat energy the same as fermentation does, right? It's that, okay. it's that same kind of thing where you've got a living organism that's growing um, and that produces heat. And so the, you know, part of the idea of the floor malting is spreading it out in a really thin layer on the floor. Um, and then you, you turn it, you rake it, you, uh, you know, we have uh, glycol cooled floor. So we're taking heat out from below too. Wow. Um, but you know, the bed depth, sort of dictates the, you know, there's a thermal mass of, of grain and then like how fast that heat can dissipate with the turning and the cooling and everything. Um, kind of, you know, the, the, the name of the game is, is, is controlled germination and keeping the temperature steady and, and allowing that heat to dissipate. And um, so the biggest thing that we did that we just didn't quite get right was um, you know, the size of our floors, the square footage of the floor and the amount of grain we thought the floor could hold, you know, it's, it's, it's math, right? I mean, it's, you know, this, this thick of a bed, over this many square feet is this volume of grain gets you a thing. Um, yeah. But you know, we, we were maybe a little optimistic in terms of that, that heat dissipation from that amount of grain on that, that square footage. So we kind of slightly undersized the floors. So we have these two germination floors and uh, we sort of sized everything that the steep tanks and the kiln. And, and then we thought the floors were sized to be able to do 10 ton batches each 10 okay. tons of raw grain. Okay. Uh, and when you put 10 tons on that floor, um, it was even with frequent turning, it was difficult to dissipate the heat. It was just we were having an issue of maintaining the kind of control over the germination that we, we, we need to have. Uh, so we had to sort of slowly throttle back the, the, the quantity of grain, the volume of grain on the floor until the bed depth was a little thinner, um, to be able to manage it the way we need to. Yeah. And of course that means less grain per batch. So instead of putting, 10 tons of raw grain into our steep tank and turning that out onto the floor and germinating 10 tons of raw grain and then kilning 10 tons of raw grain. Uh, you know, it's really more like eight, seven, you know, seven and a half to eight and a half tons. Okay. Um, 
That's a pretty big. Uh, that's a pretty big drop. I feel. That's a big math error, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, could you turn the glycol down and turn it more often? I mean, you could turn it more often, I guess, but I mean, that's a lot more labor. I mean, yeah. floor malting is the most labor-intensive way to make malt, and 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 that's hard to make. You know, the the margins already aren't the highest, so adding more labor doesn't really work. So, so basically, somewhere within that missing amount of grain per batch that we're able to malt, uh, somewhere in there was kind of like most of our what we had projected to be our profit margin. Oh. So, you know, it's God. it's been. It's been a, a, a challenge just to, to sort of make all the math work when you're making less per batch. Imagine if you had a you know a 30 barrel fermenter, but you could only put 22 barrels in it instead, and every batch was 22 instead of 30. Um, it's like that, you know. Uh, but the upside is, you know, we figured that out. Uh, we're making great malt. Like it's it's not an impediment to the production side, which is what it what matters. Yeah. And um, we're expanding, and so we're adding a third germination floor. Uh, which will hold 10 tons and we can use the same steep tanks, the same kiln. And okay. so we'll end up with a net increase in capacity over what we first thought we'd have. So we'll end up with about 40% more capacity than what we have. And, um, wow. and it'll, 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 it'll make things all flow a lot better. And the, the business will, will, <laughs> yeah. will work better as a business. Okay. All right. Well, that's cool, man. I'm glad you guys are expanding. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So what's the, what, what you talk a lot about floor malting. So why is that, how, how is it different and why is it maybe better? Well, it, it differs from modern malting. Modern malting is done typically in a, um, you know, a GKV, they call them germination kilning vessels or other methods that come along the way or like salad in box. Um, the modern methods of malting are, are more, um, more efficient because you're putting all the malt in one big vessel. You're not spreading out on a thin layer. Um, but to be able to keep the heat down and maintain good airflow through there, you know, you've got a lot of mechanical, um, you know, you're making up for that, that spreading out on a floor and turning it by hand with a lot of process controls and, and mechanical, uh, turning and, you know, rotating around within the tank and that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it can produce hot spots and, um, and different, you know, different temperature variation throughout. Um, I, I mean, I think you can, they're, you know, people that are doing malting on a large scale are, have gotten pretty good at controlling that. But uh, there's always been a, a real brewer fascination with and love for floor malted grain. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of the deep science as to what makes it better. But the, but most brewers over the years, especially brewers in the UK and, you know, Eastern Europe, Czech Republic, uh, talk about floor malted grain as having a little more complexity, a little more of that like bready, malty, you know, that 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 sort of biscuit bread character and and um and i you know some of it has to do with the uh amount of oxygen that the grain gets um even even in a big tank where you're blowing a lot of a lot of oxygen through and and aerating it um it's still um you know it's it's just a different it, it behaves differently than when you spread the grain out on the big floor and you're talking about just the surface area and the turned grain interacting with the air um it's a, it's a different dynamic um and so there's there's also some talk of, of you know, some speculation that, that we'd love to see some science, you know, kind of confirm and, and, and we think that'll happen. But, there, you know, that there's a microbiome on the grain, like living on the grain that uh, is is interacting more with the atmosphere um, and, and, and adding to that complexity. So, OK, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's something where it's it's harder and it's, you know, it's very labor intensive. It's backbreaking. I mean, you've seen the photos of the, you know, always a, you know, a photo of an old guy dragging up. Yeah. Their backs are actually breaking. Yeah. It is kind of, yeah. That old um, guy is actually 24. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, 
there's enough lore of, of floor malting to to have always sparked my curiosity about it, my love for it. I always kind of prefer floor malted Maris Otter over over uh, modern, uh, you know, GKV malted Maris Otter. Um, yeah, yeah, Magnolia. So, you, you you were using it quite often, actually. Yeah, yeah, as much as we could. Um, and that's and that gets back to your question: Why? I mean, I I, I blame Michael Lewis. Uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Get him on the phone. Yeah, um, you know he he taught that you know at that time that was he was teaching the master brewers program before Charlie Bamforth took it over and uh, you know his background in malting biochemistry um, seemed to give him a particular point of view and perspective when he talked about um, especially in the early stages of our of the course you know it felt like as a as a home brewer trying to you know go through that program to to learn more about brewing so I could open a brewery. Uh, I really, at the time, I was a little frustrated. I want to get right to the, the beer ranking part, you know. And we spent yeah. the first—I felt like we spent the first month or month and a half talking about grain, barley physiology, uh, and malting and malting biochemistry. And that whole time, I was probably sitting there thinking, like, "Come on, let's get to like mashing and yeah, like I don't care you know? about chemistry. Let's, let's get, get to drinking. Come yeah. on, what does chemistry have to do with beer? When does the beer come out the other side <laughs> yeah. of all this? Yeah. Um, but in hindsight, it's just the way he taught. You know, sometimes a teacher just you know, sticks in your mind and, and, uh, yeah. um, you know, it's a sign of a good teacher, but the way he taught that program instilled in me this, uh, this deep appreciation for malt and, and, the, and the role of malt as the soul of beer and the, the, the thing upon which everything else is built and layered. And, um, and so like, I, I feel like I went through every step of my journey after that, um, figuring out what kind of brewery I wanted to open and what kind of beer I wanted to make. And then doing that, um, always with that in the back of my mind, that was always, kind of like the way he kind of taught me about about the role of malt and beer sort of uh, has stuck with me like to this day mm-hmm. and so when you know ron my other business partner silverstein was was uh starting admiral you know i i had been fantasizing about maybe when i was expanding magnolia we could uh, we could add like a small floor malting there just you know not 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 for show but not for the total amount of malt we needed just to, uh, enough to be something that could tell the story and help connect people to that part of the process and that, that, there was no room for it there's no space so that was around the same time that ron was starting up admiral and so uh, he knew of my interest in it and, and in, the, in the in in malt and making malt and so um we just decided to to, to join up and I, I i jumped onto the team nice I love it. Uh, Peter Munoz in the chat. Good old Peter. He asks a question. He says, with the hot or cold spots in the malting, does that affect uh, either flavor or conversion? Well, I think when you're germinating, it's just about consistent consistent germination, right? So you're, okay. it's, you're, you're controlling the rate of germination. You're controlling the plant growing, right? I mean, that's what, that's what it is. You know, you're yeah. sprouting grain. So, you know, the whole, the whole point of it is that, you know, barley in its, in its raw state is is this you know nature designed it to be a really robust hearty seed that can bounce around through fields and be digested by birds and still be a viable seed so it's got these these gums these beta glucans and, and proteins that are holding all that starch that we want as brewers uh in this matrix and so you know germination is really just tricking the each seed each seed and your giant floor of, of kernels uh tricking each one of those into thinking that the conditions are right for it to start becoming a new barley plant and that causes the little embryo in there to, to synthesize and, and secrete hormones that, 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 and synthesize enzymes that break down, activate enzymes that break down the, uh, the beta-glucans and some of the proteins and to get to the starch and make that starch more accessible. So 
Um, and, and the whole time it's doing that, it's consuming the starch, right? It's metabolizing that starch uh, or the sugars that are that are that come from that starch. Uh, it's using the same starch that we want to use as brewers. It's using that to become a plant, right? So it's it's producing a, a rootlet system that starts to emerge in the early days of germination, and then it starts to produce the acrospire, which is the first little shoot that would come out of the ground. Um, that starts traveling along the inside of the husk. You can sort of see a little uh, raised little part where you can see the acrospire forming. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's using the starch that we want to use, uh, to make plant matter so that it can, it can get roots into the ground and get a shoot up out of the ground so that it can bring in sunlight. And, and so, uh, the, the more consistent, the entire batch of grain is, is germinating, um, the, the, more control you have over you don't want that to go too far like if you let that happen unchecked uh, or if it happened faster in some parts of the floor than others you would end up with a loss of extract uh, because you would have uh, the places where germination proceeded more quickly you those kernels would have used up more of that starch to make more plant matter because they'd be farther along in their life cycle right they'd be, okay. the rootlets would be a little longer and the acrospire would be a little longer and um, and so that's just wasteful um, so you know to try to get uh, a batch of, of grain turning into a batch of malt that all has a similar extract and and um, and and hasn't you know we, we want the least amount of that starch going into the plant material as possible right. uh, we want the most amount of it to stay in the kernel for the brewer to use and so it's like this little give and take or a trade-off right? right so having it happen consistently throughout your whole piece like a the batch of grain on a, on a floor is called a piece uh, having that whole having that Consistent just means that, you know, it's just a, it's a way of ensuring that we're going to end up with consistent malt and a consistent extract. Got it. You got all that, Peter? There'll be a test at the end of it, Peter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Acrospire. It sounds like a, like a metal album. Acrospire. <laughs> Acrospire. <laughs> Dave, it also That's is one of the unique man. things about what you're doing there is actually, you know, further up the food train with actually the, the actual barley that you're using. I mean, aren't you using very specific barley that was developed by one of your partners or somebody somewhere else? I'm just sort of weaving your <laughs> weaving you into this answer. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. Whose uh, initials? Okay, are... my next question. No. <laughs> Onward. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, my love for Marisotter, and I used that almost exclusively throughout my whole time brewing Magnolia. But like the bummer, you have about a tattoo of Marisotter, I think, right on your back. Like a big you one. Thought, you've seen that. Uh, <laughs> um, it, you know, the only thing about it, the only downside that I ever saw with it was that it was from six thousand miles away. And so, um, the thing that the thing that was appealing to me from the beginning, and it made me want to join up with Ron and Curtis, was you know when I was still doing Magnolia, it was like I, I thought this was a way to to uh, help engineer a way to get locally grown grain that it was of a similar type of quality uh, malt. Um, uh, as what I was used to using that was coming over from England. And so um, the, the one of the central tenets of Admiral is uh, locally grown, California grown. I mean, all of our grain is grown in California. Most of it's grown in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, much of the, Most of that is grown in the east, the west side of the Sacramento Valley, like closest to the Bay Area here. So, I mean, it's really from, you know, 60, 70 miles away. Uh, there's some some of our some of some of our grain comes from up around Tule Lake, which is near the Oregon border in the Klamath River Basin, so a little farther, but still NorCal. Okay. Um, so it's it's all California grown, and and that's like a key thing that we want to we want to connect brewers and distillers with 
uh, and the people who drink the beer and the spirits that are made with the work of the brewers and distillers, we want to connect everybody back to, you know, the beer is an agricultural product. It comes from, you know, first and foremost, um, malt is the, is the foundation. And so having that, you know, similar to the rest of the food movement that's, that's been thriving for so long now around here, especially and now everywhere, um, you know, just knowing that there's this connection to the land and the people working the land and that they're part of the local economy. It's uh, saving fossil fuel by not shipping heavy grain around the world. And so, yeah, the whole thing with Admiral is it's all California grown. And then within that, um, you know, in, in plant breeding, you know, you're, you're, you're always trying to, to outpace changes in, in pests and diseases and things that can damage a crop, you know, mm-hmm. to make it more viable for the farmer to grow it and uh, for, for the farmer to grow a high quality product that the maltster can then turn into good malt. So uh, in our case, uh, we work with uh, uh, Lynn Gallagher, who's at UC Davis, who just passed away uh, very recently, uh, who's been, you know, spent a lot of his life uh, in plant breeding and spent a number of years developing uh, one particular variety that's called Butta 12, B-U-T-T-A 12. And um, in that variety, we were the first malt, first people to put it into commercial uh, production, commercial growing and, and turning into malt on a commercial scale. Um, but it was developed to to be well-suited to the the, cal, the NorCal climate, growing conditions, uh, the, the diseases that are most commonly affecting crops, barley crops here in this region. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a... Not only is it locally grown by uh, by our fellow local humans here in this community, you know, who are who, like we're you know we're keeping it in the in the in the NorCal community. But not only that, it's it's comes from uh, the vast majority of the grain that the barley we're malting now comes from uh, a particular variety that was developed at UC Davis for Northern California and its its agricultural conditions. That's so cool. it's, it's, as, it's as local as it can possibly get. Really. <laughs> right. Before you started Admiral, were you working with these farmers to make sure that you had the grain or was the grain sort of secondary to let's get the, the, the malting company up and running first and then we can sort of, you know, outsource or not outsource, but, you know, source our, our, our barley. Well, we had, you know, you the way it typically works it's similar to hops, I guess. And, you know, you, you can either contract for something or buy it on the spot market. Yeah. You know, hops, hops are like that too. So um, in this case, contracting for a certain grain, certain specs, certain, you know, kernel size, assortment, uh, plumpness, uh, free from, you know, all the, all the obvious diseases and, and problems and pests. And, um, you know, that, that you, you spec that out in your contract and you pay a grower to grow it. And if they meet the specs, then you buy the grain. Um, so we were, we were contracting for, for grain a few years before we opened in part, cause we had like everybody construction delays and opened later than we thought. Yeah. So we ended up having grain grown for us before we could actually use it because the malt house wasn't up and running. But, uh, you know, we had, we had, when we started and when we started malting in 2017, we had, grain that from 2015 and for sure, I don't think 2014, 2015, 2016. So we had grain from a couple of previous growing seasons that we had contracted to be grown for us. Okay. Uh, okay. And so we'd already, by the time we were actually ready to malt the grain, we already had some relationships and some trial and error with how things were growing for different farmers and what was, what, and what was working. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we started the farmer relationship I guess inadvertently we started the farmer relationships prior to malting because the malt house wasn't ready in time to use the grain. Yeah, uh, for sure. Buying grain on the spot market sounds a lot like like being on Tinder. <laughs> like, 
Check for pumpness. That's good. Uh, free disease free. Yep. That okay. You know you gotta you gotta hit the the check marks. There could be an app for that. You could be onto something. There really should be. I mean, honestly, grain spot market app. <laughs> yeah. Swipe left. Swipe, swipe right. Swiping left. Swiping right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Germinate or you know what's the opposite of germinate? I don't know. Degerminate. Uh, Cattle feed. Non-germinate. Dead, dead kernels. No <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know. So I was looking through through your malts on the website, and you know I'm used to seeing utility names like Crystal or Pale Chocolate or whatever. But when you're producing malts like Kilnsmith or Admiral's Hearth, are you are you like replicating any particular malt style, or are you just aiming for something new? No, we are definitely. Re- I mean, we're producing styles that are, you know, that a brewer would be able to use in lieu of. Similar malt in that style. Okay. This is what happens when you let brewers start a malt house. I mean, two <laughs> of the three of us are brewers, and we're used to naming beers. And so right. instead of just being, instead of leaving well enough alone and saying, "Yeah, that's our paleo malt," we can't help. We have to give it like some kind of fun name because we're so used to naming all of our beers. That's and, right. And uh, and so you know, like Gallagher's Best, which is named for Lynn Gallagher, who is the oh. uh, the guy that ran the breeding program that we that developed the seed that we're using so much of. You know, Gallagher's Best is a English influenced pale ale malt, uh, and you could use it the way you would use another English pale ale malt like Marisotter or or uh, Golden Promise or something like that. But we confuse everybody by giving it a name like Gallagher's <laughs> Best. And we're paying tribute to somebody who who we couldn't have done what we're doing without him. And so, like you know, it's kind of what you do with beer names too. You you immortalize something that's meaningful to you. Right. And so there, you know, you got, if you do, we do make it hard, you know, Ron and I are the ones doing the sales for Admiral and like, we have to answer these questions all the time. And we, I know we've made it harder than it needs to be because you would like to know like, what kind of malt is that? And you do have to go one level deeper and look on, you know, the website or the price sheet and see that, oh, Gallagher's Best is a pale ale malt. Um, I mean, the only one that's got a very intuitive name is Admiral Pills, mm-hmm. um, that, which yeah. is our Pills and Malt. But, um, <laughs> Gallagher's Pale Ale Malt. Well, Change the name. Doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. <laughs> yeah, Sully. What do you know? Um, well, then, well, then you have a unique it, selling opportunity because then you can explain what it is. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, like, some... it's we're hand selling all this malt. I mean, there are only two of us, and we're talking to the brewers directly and distillers too. And so you know, we can tell the story. Uh, you know, Kilnsmith is a kiln caramel. Um, you know, Admiral's Hearth and Midway are both Munich style malts. You could think of one as a light Munich, one as a dark Munich. Um, Pacific Victor uh, is is our uh, Vienna style. You know, so they do all correlate to a, a, a category of malt that you would be familiar with. And so with, yeah. with, with our explanation, we could probably help you figure out which ones to use. <laughs> well, and I mean, I, I think the names are are inviting enough to where you 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 care about what this means, you know. It's Kilnsmith. It's it's very interesting. It it sort of invites you to learn more about what you know what it might be. So I I think the names are fine. I think Sully uh you know Sully has it. It's fine. Well, I know fine. a little bit about marketing. I've been doing it for a while. <laughs> Just a little so, bit. I mean, hey, but yeah. whatever. This stuff is free. If you don't want it, that's fine. That's right. But it it is pretty funny because that is like the 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 trend or what you guys are used to as brewers is coming up with like creative and inviting names for this kind of stuff. Um, just as long as you don't start like malting with, you know, with cereal <laughs> or doing whatever, whatever the brewers are doing these days. I don't even know anymore. Right. Hazy malt. The Rice Krispies uh, been malted. <laughs> uh, the moisture level. Yeah, I think it's Cinnamon Toast Crunch for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah, that could be next level malting. I don't, I'm going to, uh, 
Uh, I have to talk to the rest of the guys, but I think we'll leave that to somebody else. <laughs> I think you should, yeah. Uh, someone in the chat, uh, Tim, uh, wants me to ask about the chit malt. Chit malt. Yeah. So our name for that is It's the Chit. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. And if there's one thing you can count on maltsters for, it is making puns about chitting. Mm. Um, Hell yeah. Chit- chitting is when the, the kernel first starts to, during the very beginning of germination, this is when it's still in the steep tank before we throw it out to the floor to, to really, for the, the bulk of germination. Uh, okay. The, the embryo uh, starts to produce the very beginning of plant growth that starts to come out of the, the, the kernel. Uh, the, the, the proxi- there's, a, there's a proximal end of, of the kernel and the, the distal end, like based on distance from the embryo. So the embryo end of the kernel, the beginnings of a rootlet structure. So there's like little rootlets that want to come out that, that are going to, in, in the mind of the kernel of grain, it's going to be rootlets that go into the ground, okay. um, little tentacles. So um, that's that's the sign, like once it starts to chit, uh, that's the sign that you can kind of proceed from steeping to, to, to full-blown germination and, and send it out of the steep tank and put it onto the floor. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, long before there were any methods to measure you know, how far along is the germination? Is it ready? Uh, you know, a, a monster throughout time would just watch for it to chit. Uh, so we love our, our chitting puns. Uh, can't help it. And, but uh, it's the chit is our chit malt, which means that it really, essentially, it's just minimally germinated, right? So it goes essentially from um, you know, that beginning stage where it's just starting to chit uh, in the steep, uh, and, it, and it pretty much goes from there to the kiln. And so then we, so we're stopping it before it really gets going the way we would normally allow the rest of our, our, our products to be malted, to be germinated. Um, and, and so that gets things started, but stops before. So you're, you're not going to get the kind of, you're not going to get mod- the modification and you're not going to get the kind of extract that you get. But uh, because, of, because the, some of what's happening during germination is the breakdown of the beta glucans and proteins and things like that that we're mm-hmm. talking about. Um, in all other cases, we want that breakdown of those things to happen because that's part of what malting is. That's about making that the, the things we want more accessible, making it easier for the brewer. Sure. Uh, you take those beta-glucans out or down at least, and it makes it easier to louder. Um, so that's part mm-hmm. of what good malting is. But so with chip malt, um, you're stopping all that. You're starting the germination. You're stopping it. Uh, and then you're, and you're doing that because instead for that particular style of malt, you want um, – the beta glucans, the proteins, things like that. It's good for um, it's good for head retention. Head, it's good for foam formation and stability. Mm. Uh, it's good for body, uh, and that's at small percentages, like five percent of the grist, maybe ten at most. Um, and then when you bump up the percentage of chip malt in the grist, it's good for haze too, because you have these proteins and things that are that are contributing to haze. So okay. it's a and the, th- the key thing about it is it's um, it's malt. So it's malted barley. So it's a Reinheitsgebot compliant way to get haze and a Reinheitsgebot compliant way to get uh, at body and, and uh, head retention and things like that. So um, instead of, you know, if that's of interest to somebody or just a more, you know, just more traditional way of adhering to the, that kind of German methodology of brewing. Um, yeah. It's a way to get some of those properties without necessarily resorting to an unmalted grain or a different type of grain like oats or something like that. It's a, it's a cool alternative to some of the other adjuncts that one might use to achieve certain effects in a beer. Okay, got it. That sounds pretty cool. Let me take a break here real fast, boys. Um, we're going to come right back. Uh, we're going to keep talking malt 
and uh, a bunch of other stuff uh, over here on the session. Uh, Dave McLean from Admiral Maltings and, of course, Sean O'Sullivan from his therapist couch. We'll be right back. This is the session. <laughs> tuned into the session because life's too short to listen to crappy radio hey thanks for hanging around everybody it's the session we're still hanging out with dave from admiral maltings and uh dave you were saying during the break that you have an award and i would love to hear about this award please <laughs> with is it with you i don't i don't have it with me no, oh my gosh um I thought all you brewers always carried all your awards with you, like a GABF. This is a just... different kind of year, right? I mean, okay, well, that's true. It all happened virtually this year. <laughs> um, so we have a we have a craft malt con, which is like a craft brewers conference, but for maltsters. And it just happened last week. Wow, uh, I, didn't, I didn't know there were like enough of you guys. Oh yeah, there are I, up north of seventy craft maltsters around the country. Wow. Uh, maybe pushing 100 at this point. I'm not sure. That's cool. And, uh, and so we have a Craft Maltsters Guild that is kind of like our, you know, like the like the BA, but for Craft Malt. I, I have to filter everything through my brewer's lens because I was doing that for so long. <laughs> it helps. Yeah. No. This is like that. This yeah. is like that. Um, <laughs> so we had, you know, Craft Malt Con. In past years, it, you know, we've some number of our team have gone to it. Um, and it's been in a place just like CBC is. And you go and see your colleagues and friends and you drink a lot of beer and, uh, this year it was all online and virtual, um, but there's the Malt Cup, which is the <laughs> awards uh, component of Craft Malt Con, and um, uh, we won uh, we won a third place for the in the Pills and Malt category for Admiral Pills. Wow! Congrats, man! Uh, which That's awesome. Second, second year in a row. Last year we won our Feldbloom Malt, which is like a we call it a Continental Pilsner. It's like a very very light Vienna in some ways. Um, we won also last year for that. So. Two years in a row, we've 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 won awards at the at, uh, at the Malt Cup. That's pretty cool, man. That, how does that judge? Do they like run numbers and steep it and you know taste? Yeah, it's a lot of sensory, a lot of uh, the yeah. hot steep method, which okay. is um, the the relatively new, um, fairly accessible, user friendly, reproducible way to to consistently do malt sensory. Um, it's uh, you know, it's it is it's a it's a method of, of steeping and and then doing and then um, uh, under very controlled conditions. So you mm-hmm. can, you know it's going to be the same every time. You know, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Draft Lab, but they have you know um, a beer flavor map. I know Sean, you know, like they yeah we use out the beer beer flavor map for GABF judges uh, to just be thought starters for different flavor. You know, if you're trying to put your finger on a particular flavor. Oh, that's um, cool. So there's also a, a base malt flavor map and a, uh, a specialty malt flavor map. And so um, with Draft Lab, you can do group sensory with different number of, pe- number of people can all participate on the same uh, exploration of a particular malt or beer hmm. and, and get an aggregate of data for, uh, you know, this many, most the, the, the leading flavors were biscuit or cookie or, you know, new mown hay or grass whatever uh, yeah. so yeah there's a there's a hot steep sensory component and uh technical component and and yeah that's cool congrats yeah. man that's awesome that's awesome yeah you know obviously we're we're still you know hanging around these covid times uh i want to know a little bit about how you guys have 
either you've had to pivot or how you guys are surviving COVID. Uh, we talked to a lot of breweries on the show who have had to alternate their business model drastically in order to survive, you know, but that's like doing, uh, you know, curbside pickup or to-go orders or serving it with food or whatever. But I imagine that is not the same, uh, you know, as, as a malting house. So how are you guys able to sort of uh, plot along during these times? Yeah, it's, it's been tough uh, for all the obvious reasons. I mean, and we, you know, you can think of really kind of two sides to Admiral, right? There's the, there's the malt house that is the, the thing that we're all about and what we're doing. Uh, and then there's the rake, which is our pub. Um, and the rakes, the whole concept of the rake is, you know, we only serve beers and spirits made with our malt, uh, along with a killer made from scratch, food, you know, chef driven food program. And, um, you know, so it's a great little pub that in the best of times when we're not in a pandemic has these beautiful windows that we designed to look out right over the German. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Floor. I mean, it's like, Everything about it was designed to showcase, like, this is what, this is how malt is made. This is what it looks like when malt is germinating. And this, this is, you know, years of people turning the malt a couple times a day. Uh, you know, none of that, unfortunately, is usable right now because we're outdoor. Right now we're back, at least we're back to outdoor dining. But yeah. um, for a while there, we were just doing, you know, to go only like everybody else. So we were, we've been subject to the same situation that brewers and bars and restaurants and everybody have been. Um so we are back to having outdoor dining or outdoor seating in our parking lot. Um, but uh, we can't really use the rake the way, you know, the rake is supposed to be this educational tool to like show people like it's visual. It's like, look, malting is happening. You know I mean? As far it's as we know, it's the only place we know of in the world. It's like that where like the, you can sit at a table and drink beer made with malt that, and then see like that malt also being made right through the window. That's a cool concept because um, so, it is it is very much like, you know, brew pubs in like the mid 90s where they started putting those really nice copper vessels right behind the bar. So that's you true. could do the same thing. It's um, funny. I never really thought about that. But and that's but that's I want to come back to that. That's a good point because about like the timing of you know where we are in malting relative to now, but um, relative to brewing. But but yeah, like that, that's that's one thing that we've had to I'm, we're all probably getting very tired of the word pivot. But <laughs> yeah, man, that's like the word of 2020. I would have loved to have left that in 2020, but it seems to be coming with us to 2021. Um, yeah, you know, to pivot as much as we've had to, like, are we to go only this week? Are we open about outdoor dining? <laughs> it's exhausting. Only? Yeah, it is exhausting, sure. and it's like you know the, the 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 bringing staff back and then trying to figure out scheduling and hiring people. The, the whole thing is exhausting. So on the rake side of things, um, the rake is this one of a kind place, but it's been very hard to make that go smoothly because of what's happening. Um, on the production side, which is the, the engine that drives Admiral, you know, mm -hmm. making malt and selling malt, it's been hard because brewers are dealing with that side of things. Like the fact that they can't sell their beer everywhere or even in their yeah. own tasting room to the extent that they used to. So, um, you know, that causes, uh, a lot of inward, a lot of soul searching and cost cutting and how can we stay afloat, you know? And so, um, you know, it makes, it's not the, it's not the best environment to be selling the most expensive malt out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. yeah. that's, that would be, it'd be easier if our malt was, was, a, was, could be a little more price competitive, but it, but it's not because that's not what it's about. It's about paying the farmers in our, in the Bay area or the in NorCal area, you know, a fair price for their grain. And then, making mold in this very loving hands-on way, but that uses a lot of bodies, a lot of labor, a lot of people and take, you know, so it is what it is. It costs, it costs us what it costs us to make malt, and we can't really, 
deal with the fact that, you know, people are, you know, it's harder for people to choose to, to spend money right now, but, um, but it turns out to be okay. Like it's not been great, but it's also mm-hmm. not been as bad as I might've thought it could have been or worried that it was going to be because, um, there is this sentiment that seems to extend to us as well, which is, you know, support local, support your local economy. Um, mm-hmm. Consumers are feeling that, right? They're choosing to buy takeout from their local restaurants or go to their local brewery to buy beer. I mean, like, there is a sense, you know, of all the crappy things that are going on right now with COVID, there is some silver lining or positive light there that, that you know, we are all trying to trying to be sensitive to what's going on and help each other, help each other as much as we can. And some of that seems to extend to us, um, even just the knowing, you know, wanting to to know where your food and drink ingredients come from. You know, like people seem more into that. I mean, like there's the early on in the, in COVID, there were supply chain issues with, in the food world, right? With like pork factories like shutting down because <laughs> of COVID outbreaks and things like that. And, people, and, yeah. and it, it got conversations started that got people thinking about, wow, like is it really okay that all of the pork in this country comes from like five plants in the Midwest. And, yeah. you know, at any rate, well, however that conversation started, it seems to extend to, I feel like there's like a little bit more of a, an interest in like, Oh yeah, he's, this brewery is making beer from malt made from these people up the road here, you know, that then they're getting the grain from the guys that are a little further up the road, right over there, you know, like that. There's something about that. That's stuff that you can kind of control in in a in a world where a lot of stuff's outside of our control. There's mm. there seems to be um, a little silver lining where people are paying a little more attention or, or caring a little more about supporting locals. So we find that brewers that you know brewers will if they're able to somehow you know leverage that and mention that to their customers and distillers too, um, and 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 use that as a way to show their they're the drinkers, you know, Hey, this is, this is what we're doing. This is where we're getting our ingredients from. Um, That seems to be helping us. You know, you you really do see that. I mean, you, you, you see like craft brewer menu, uh, beer menus uh, on their website or, you know, at their, at their pub or we're at a tasting room and they actually do call out your malt. I mean, they do, it's a, it's a, it's a pride thing. It's they showcase it. You see it up there. You don't see that with a lot of maybe some, uh, not so much domestic malts, but you definitely see with uh, you know imported malt. But uh, it's definitely see a lot of Admiral malting on the on the beer boards. Yeah, people well, know that it's made with that, so that's pretty. Yeah, cool. we we love that. I mean, that that's keeping us going. That's keeping us afloat. <laughs> and and you know we can we can turn around and tell people some. You know, we work with a, a number of different growers, farmers, but um, you know, but we there are faces that go with the, the growing of the grain too. There are some yeah. farmers that we've been working with since before we started malting and um, we know how they will, you know, what their practices are and how aligned they are with, with our values. And um, we can connect all those dots for people in a way that I think in this kind of crazy topsy turvy, turbulent world, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's some comfort and knowledge and knowing that kind of thing. Like if, if in, in the chaotic scene and environment that we're in now, if you can say that like, uh, you know, Curtis was making this malt using grain grown by uh, Fritz Durst and, and Bob Shop up in in uh, Esparto, you know, which is just just up near Woodland. Um, to be able to like have that sense of knowledge and like understanding of this is where the thing came from that I'm eating or drinking, you know, I don't know. To me, that like and especially now, that gives me some sense of comfort that like it's not just all chaos. Like that there's some 
there's some just sense some st- of stability. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you know, everyone's taking care of each other. And I feel like that's just sort of the craft beer scene, you know, that, that helped craft beer kind of grow. It's know who your brewers are, support your local brewery because we're sort of help keep the local economy. But then when you can buy ingredients from within that local economy, I, I think that's just a double win for everybody. That's the, <laughs> that's the little soapbox that I, I feel compelled to get you on. Every you didn't want to get on, but I want you to get on. He was like, up there. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, I mean, I've been a brewer for my entire adult life. Uh, I opened a brewery when I was 27 or 28. Uh, I, I've wrapped myself up in the flag of support your local brewery for the entire time that I've been a beer drinker for the most part. And so like I've, I've drank that Kool-Aid and, and, and believe it in my core. It's just like, it doesn't stop at the brewery, like support your local brewery. What does that mean? Like, why are we supporting them? I'm like, think back to when we started our brewery shop. You know, I mean, it's like we were trying to convince people, why should I spend two or three dollars more per pint when I could get like mass produced beer for at that time, like a dollar fifty or two dollars? And it was like, why should I spend three fifty or four dollars a pint? Um, and, you know, you had to we had to we had to convince people, you know, we had to really everybody that came into Magnolia or 21st Amendment back in the day, like we had to convince them you know, well, yeah, this is worth it. You should, this is, here's some reasons why you should drink the beer that we made here. The love that we put into it, the ingredients we sourced, the, you know, whatever. But, you know, the thing is like that, it doesn't stop at the brewery. Like that's a really arbitrary line. Like when breweries like us, I've always said, support your local brewery. It, it, it seems like in my mind, it's implied like, well, yeah, support your local maltster and support your local farmer, like support all the, lo- like if there's a reason why you're supporting your local brewery, that's not just, unique to breweries it's like you're saying in a bigger way i want to put my money in the community and, and support people doing interesting unique things i don't want to buy a mass produced thing that's made from far away using ingredients that i don't know where they came from you're saying like yeah i'm supporting my local brewery because these are people in my town and my neighborhood that do are doing a cool thing and i want them to succeed well, just like i want everybody else to succeed and then as soon as you shine the spotlight on that and look at that you're like well yeah then Somebody had to make that malt, and if there's somebody making it down the road or across the bay, they should probably be supported too. And if somebody, and if they're choosing to only buy grain from Northern California farmers, and that grain goes to a, a seed cleaner and storage place where it knocks off all the you know the extraneous plant bits and it gives us the kernels to malt, um, like there's a lot of people involved in that process. The drive, people that drive those trucks, like there's a lot of there's just a lot there that's that is local beyond the local brewery. And so I guess the soapbox part is when, you know, when we say like for years, we've all kind of wrapped ourselves up in the support your local brewery, you know, flag or, or blanket or whatever you want to call it. But, um, but like it just, to me, it seems like for a while there, there was no choice in where you got your ingredients from. Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter like in the early days, but right. now that there is choice, if you can get super high quality grain anywhere in the country, not just I'm not just talking about Admiral in the Bay Area, but like if you if there's a craft maltster near you and you're a commercial brewer or a home brewer, um, and you have access to that, like that's and it costs a little more because it probably does, um, it definitely does. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's that's the same as trying to convince somebody in 1997 that they should spend four dollars for a pint of locally made beer, you know, which was like unheard of at the time you know but it's the same idea it's like we're, we're trying to change the way people think about 
the supply side of craft brewing, the ingredient side and the, the agricultural side, the same way that like 25, 30 years ago, we were trying to just change people's minds about beer itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like especially now and I, I COVID sort of highlights that where you, you, you need to support your local community now more than ever, because if you want these places to be around, you know, when everything quote goes back to normal, which it's probably not going to, but whatever, um, you, you want to make sure that, that they get enough business to, to stay afloat places like you, places like, like, uh, you know, your local brewery. Uh, and, and now is the time to be able to, to do that. And it's, you know, just like, working from home has now become more of a necessity than ever. And, and a lot of these big companies are realizing you can work from home. It's still, everything's fine. It's not going to like ruin your entire business, you know, to not come into the office every day. Um, I think people are really realizing that the community is where you should be spending your money first. If you want a nice, you know, sort of community. I, I, I had this, this idea the other day about, like when you, it's just something dumb, right? Unbeer, non-beer related. I have to take my car in to get fucking worked on or whatever. And, uh, you know, I was talking to my wife. I was like, oh, maybe we'll need new tires. And, and she's like, well, you know, they can put new tires on. I was like, but we should go to our, to our local tire shop. And, you know, and it's that whole like sense of community where I would never really have thought about that pre-COVID because I want to save a buck. But now more than <clears> ever, <throat> you sort of realize right. how, how dependent everybody else is on, on your, your dollars. And if you want nice places to be in your community, if you want things to be within reach for you and you want them to be high quality, like tires uh, or beer, I mean, whatever. Um, <laughs> they go together. Then you got to support it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think-, I think your soapbox was better than mine. Yeah, you know, also there's, there's this other <laughs> thing I've been thinking about. When you think about buy local, that moniker, that saying, that thing that everybody kind of leans into and almost just like throws, it's a throwaway phrase in some ways. Yeah. Uh, and But if you really believe it in it, and then you're, you're going to support local and do the right thing uh, if that's what you believe in. But it's almost like craft beer, the only local parts of craft beer are the water and the people that brew it. And what I think right. what Admiral's done is that you got you have all like, you know, you you've taken it to the next step, and you can also get local hops now. There really is; it's all encompassing right now, and yeah, it's, it's pretty admirable. <laughs> I like what you did there. Um, yeah, I mean, if you think about, like, not every region in the country can have can grow grain, right? And if you go to southern climate in southern areas, especially southeast, like it's really hard. Um, not every latitude can grow hops really well, so yeah. You know, not everybody has access to the same local ingredients because agriculture doesn't work that way. But if you do have access to it, I mean, think about the places where for generations that culture exists, the integrated culture where like the growing of the things you use happens at the same in the same community or area. Like if you go to, you know, Bavaria to Bamberg and the, the you know, the, the beers in the little gas houses of, of Bavaria are made from, you know, malt that's grown from malt made there in Bamberg that's grown nearby. I mean, you go to Norfolk or, or, um, you know, Yorkshire in the UK and, and you've got these Maris Otter farms and, and, and maltsters that are malting that Maris Otter and then brewers that are using it. I mean, those, those over many generations, those, those cultures have that, vibe that we crave and we love which is why we go travel to those places and check it out because you know because like of that integration because it is this complete farm to glass or whatever you want to call it i mean it's that it's the full spectrum it's the whole process it's and then and like we we idolize that we romanticize it we go we spend money to go visit those places because of it 
And I think the cool thing about both hops and malt now are that, at least in a lot of parts of the country, you can have some degree of that here. And it's in its infancy compared to over there. Um, but you can have a little bit of that. You can get a little taste of, and maybe we're building that kind of culture where, you know, beers from a region are made from regional malt and made with regional hops. And that would be totally amazing if that's where we end up with this. Yeah, that'd be rad. Uh, going back to the rake for a second, I'm looking at your your draft beer list. Is it current, like on the website? Because that's a hell of a lot of beer if you're just doing to go orders and out, uh, outdoor. Well, we're back to, too, we're right? back to yeah, outdoor yeah, yeah. now. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm thoroughly floored, <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> thing, by your selection, man. You have a, a lot of loggers, which kudos yeah. to you because I I you know that's 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 your wheelhouse. That's my vibe. Uh, you got dry hop pilsner, German style pilsner, Czech pils, Keller beer, Vienna lager, Doppelbox, Czech style dark, dark lager. Um, you have a couple hazy IPAs and literally two, which is oh three, excuse me, uh, oh, which three. is which is great. I know three. You weren't great with two, but three. I don't never never <laughs> go there. No, but you you have a a, a wide variety of uh, of of beers on tap, and they're all using Admiral Malt in one way or another, right? It's true. And, cool, and uh, you know, I think, you know, Dennis, our GM at the rake, um, likes to, to say that, you know, we're the Bay Area, one of the Bay Area's premier craft lager bars, you know, and I think that's because yeah. a lot of brewers are, when they're, if they're going to spend a little extra to use Admiral Malt, um, they want to try to maximize its impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's still amazing. It's still great to use locally grown grain in your in your hazy beer or your sour beer or whatever but like if you but you're definitely paying more for that grain <laughs> yeah and to really get the most flavor out of it you know you want it to be in at least in balance maybe not a malty beer but you want some you want a beer where the malt is evident and there's no better place for that to be than a you know a nice balanced lager or pilsner um me partial to English bitters, I would say that too but um we don't see a lot of English bitters show up at the rake because nobody's making them um <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I know. That's a that's a plea for help. Please send your bitters. Yeah. Um, they could just don't call it bitter. It'd be fine. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, but yeah, like yeah. I mean, like we our our selection skews toward um, a lot of brewer beers, beers that brewers like to drink and like to make because they like to drink them. Uh, a lot of lagers and pilsners, things like that, because there's like some qualities of super freshly kiln malt that are, that are like freshly baked bread, and if you um, work with those qualities in a sort of balanced way and let them kind of, you know, have their, their, their moment to shine in the beer flavor profile by not necessarily, uh, you know, covering them with other things. Yeah. Um, you can really, that's when you get, the, that's when you like get the most bang for your buck and maximize like what it's, what it's like to use freshly kiln local malt. So a lot of brewers do that. And then we uh, very happily buy those beers back and turn around and sell them at the rake. And we end up yeah. like with a, crazy vlogger selection that we don't see elsewhere hey so why do you think that's going on uh well first of all i think it's great that you have a lot of lagers by the way but why do you think that's going on why do you think brewers want to drink lagers and why and it's and why do you think it's caught on so much to the to the to the to the consumer well there's i mean there are a couple parts to that right i mean the subtext is why are hazy ipas so popular (laughs) But it was, it's always, there's always like a weird little lag time or disconnect. Like for a while there in the 90s and early 2000s, we were outdoing each other, trying to make the hoppiest West Coast IPAs we could. Yeah. They weren't even called West Coast IPAs. They were just IPAs, IPAs. American IPAs. But um, 
and we and we we then we we accidentally turned so many people onto it that you know we would we would commiserate slash joke with each other that we created a monster that everybody was coming in they're only looking for the most IBUs and the, the most bitterness and 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 by that time we had been doing it so we were started making those beers for ourselves and then we turned everybody onto those beers and then it was like oh shit we now everybody only wants these beers and now we got to make them they're not drinking my mild anymore <laughs> you know now we got to make them and I, I mean this seems like this is like another iteration of a similar cycle where it's like you know, we, we're always trying new things in the brewing world and trying to, like, you know, just see where we can take things, take them further. And uh, and then we end up with, thanks to our enthusiasm and hopefully the quality of our beers, we, we lure people in and people are like, yeah, I want that too. And then all of a sudden everybody wants that, which is great and flattering. But by that time, like, the brewers kind of like, man, I don't know if I want to – like, there was a while there where people – got tired of making west coast ipas now west coast ipas are back with a vengeance right people are like falling over themselves to make them but um there was a minute there where customers were demanding them more than brewers wanted to make them and i feel like that's maybe playing out similarly with like hazy beers and things like that it's like there's there's a point where it becomes saturated the, the pendulum has to eventually swing the other direction and exactly. it's going to happen again so right and then you get back to you usually the pendulum usually comes back to a place of like for brewers like man what what do i just want to make a lot of cuz i want to drink that beer exactly yeah. <laughs> what makes me sad about about the hazy ipa thing and and doing the show is that i don't know 7 times out of 10 when whenever we talk about hazies or whatever the brewers go yeah, I mean, I gotta make them, and they just sometimes they sound so defeated. I feel I feel bad because pre hazy, it was like, oh man, I brew the beers that I like to drink, and that's it. That's what I do. So if you like them, then that's fine. And I begrudgingly understand now hazies make monies. That's that's just the way it goes. But it it is sort of like. You know, you start a brewery because you love beer, and then you you end up with one style or another. You sort of have to make it, even though you don't really <laughs> you don't really like it. And then it's just a job, sometimes. Yeah, well, it, well, it, I mean, it, well, it's a business. You have to like pay attention. That's why most sure. beer pubs back in the day they had like a rainbow of flavors. They had like a yellow beer, they had a red beer, they had a dark beer, and <laughs> yeah. maybe something like an IPA. I mean, it was sort of like that's maybe. what you were kind of going after, and also yeah. the flavors that were within that rainbow as well. Yeah. So. Now it's all hazies. <laughs> right. But, but there's, all, there's always been something, there's always been a little bit of a disconnect between like what do you need to do to pay the rent and the bills? Yeah. And like what do you what do you need to do to have, satisfy your to have fun? You're in a brewer. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I read yeah. recently that uh, apparently uh, black IPAs are coming back into fashion. Wow. Mm. Who would have thought that? I don't know, man. The the beer public everything comes back around, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, we've got hard seltzers. That's just a reinvention of like Barles and James or the stuff. That Zima. Like the, yeah, Zima, Zima exactly. Yeah, I'm ready for it. Uh, Dave, I have two questions uh, from the, the same person, Eric. Uh, he says, uh, what's Dave's current favorite beer using Admiral Malts? Oh, geez. Oh, boy. You've got to be careful with that one. If you can there's answer of, that there's one. There's a lot of beers on that board. Well, and here's the second one, um, which I think is a trap, but, you know, that's just me. He says, could Dave suggest a few beers that would highlight the, quote, Golden Road of his best malts. For a boy, the wow. air quote Golden Road, and so I don't know. Well, that's a that's a Grateful Dead reference, though, isn't it? Yes, it could be. I mean, I would <laughs> hear it that way. Okay, I'm I don't know. predisposed to hear it that way, but yeah, 
Okay, well, there you go. Take it as a, a Grateful Dead reference then. And, um, well, you know, the, the funny thing is I'm, I'm not – typically, historically, I have not been a smash beer person because, like, I like the combination of ingredients. I like when you get a couple different hop varieties to talk to each other and do different things. And I like, you know, malt bills that have some different stuff going on. But that being said, some of my – favorite beers that are also really great examples of of our malts um and you know something that we hear from some brewers sometimes is like oh i was gonna put this this and this in uh, in my grain bill but i decided after the second time i brew this to back off on the carapils or back off on the you know the the, the, the sort of secondary things you might put in to add a, a component or a, a quality with super freshly killed malt um it's kind of nice to go simple you know, it's nice to, there's a lot to let kind of rise to the top mm-hmm. if you back off on a lot of the other things that you might typically use as a brewer. Uh, and so even though I'm generally not a big fan of like that, of like the idea of just isolating stuff, like from, you know, I like it from an educational standpoint for me to learn about how some ingredient works, yeah. but from like a, you know, is that the best expression of that brewer's style and abilities? You know, like I, I always feel like it's nicer when there's stuff like a multitude of things happening in a conversation with greens. But, um, you know, there's, I'm a big fan of harmonics, uh, prog rock pills, you know, it's a hundred percent Admiral Pilsner malt. Um, I'm not even sure what hops are in it, but I think it's more than it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Keep going. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's an yeah, example to me of a beer. It's a go-to beer in my fridge because it's just such a nice showcase for a straight up hundred percent freshly killed Pilsner malt profile. Um, and I, and so I think my answer to those two questions is maybe almost the same for both, which is like some of those beers that really just try to isolate and feature, um, you know, like one of our base malts. Um, some of those are really like surprisingly complex and interesting. And especially if like that malt was fresh out of the kiln, which, you know, most we're making small batches and we sell through it pretty fast. So most brewers are brewing with malt that's less than a month old or less than six weeks old at tops usually um, when it comes to base malt. So uh, things like prog rock, that's a, that's a recurring favorite of mine. Um, Well, let me jump in because what, what do you get out of a malt that's, you know, fresh and this is a leading question maybe, but uh, versus like a a Maris Otter that is, I don't know, months old. That's the, that's the thing. Well, no, it's months old. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, I spent an entire 20 years brewing, uh, fetishizing Maris Otter. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Settle down, Dave. It's early. Can I not say that yeah. on the air? The, vi- the video's on, you know. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would, I mean, I was making all these English bitters and milds using Maris Otter and then I would go over to England and go to visit these breweries and pubs. And, and I would like, it would always be like this thing that was missing. I was like, mm-hmm. why, you know, how come, like, I feel like I'm doing everything right. And it wasn't until like Admiral and realizing the value, the, the inherent, like the, the extra flavor and aromas that come from super freshly killed malt mm. that I realized, oh, my obsession with Maris Otter uh, combined with being located 6,000 miles from where Maris Otter comes from <laughs> was actually a little bit of an impediment to having like the best expression of that because it was taking so long to get here. Mm. And, um, and so that's what I realized. I was like, oh, that's why like those some of those beers are better because they're using that malt so much, you know, in a much more fresh state. And so those freshly I, I liken it to, you know, bread is too much of a 
the, the, the time frame was too short. It's like bread in one day is not nearly as good as it was the day before. So, <laughs> right. but it's like that. It's a little bit like that. Uh, coffee maybe is a little more relevant, like a little more like coffee roasted. The coffee made the day after coffee's roasted tastes amazing and smells amazing. And then coffee made from beans that were roasted maybe a week or two before is a little less bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or a little less, a little, just a little less of everything. So, there are, you know, the, it's the kilning process that, you know, where a lot of the most volatile flavors and aromas are developed in, in malt. And, and it's just the same idea. It's heat, whether you're baking bread or roasting coffee or, or kilning malt. And so those, some of those flavor compounds and aroma compounds, they're just volatile and they dissipate it. So it's, it's not a specific flavor that goes away. It's that like everything starts to fade, you know, relatively quickly. Um, and over a period of, a month or three months or six months. I mean, we like everybody to use our malt within six months. And I think that's, that's not just true for our malt. That's what we can tell people about. But I think for other malt too, it's just like the, the sooner you can use it out of the kiln, the more it's like using fresh baked bread or freshly roasted coffee. You know, it's just that all those, all those little subtle aromatics um, that are so volatile yeah. are, they're there and they're present. And even though you lose a little bit every time you you know when you smell like oh, so many brewers use our malt especially for the first time and they're like oh the brew house smells so different than it does for other malts it's like so yeah all those volatile aromas are now in your nose and not in the liquid yeah because that's why you smell them <laughs> right. um, <laughs> obvious but uh but so yeah you're not like some stuff gets lost along the way it gets lost in the you know through steam rising up out of the mash tun out of the obviously in the boil um some probably gets lost in the CO2 evolving out of the fermenter, right? So, like, mm-hmm. but if you start with more of all those compounds, right? Even though you lose stuff along the way, you lose stuff along the way for every beer that you make that way, right? Because they're all made the same way, and and then you still end up with more in the finished beer. So there's like a house character to us after all these couple of years now, three three years of ad, of uh, the rake, yeah. we get to taste all these beers made with our malt, and there is sort of a recurring consistent character that is just freshly kilned is what we call it you know okay. it's like these beers have these freshly kiln notes that yeah. just by using malt that's like a week old or two weeks old or a month old is going to be pretty different than malt that's a year old or you got to be careful with what you wish for though because people are going to start demanding like oh what is that what's that that lot is oh it's a week old i won't take that i'll, I'll wait till <laughs> it comes out tomorrow right yeah. it's like well yeah you know that's the monster kind of, in the beer world right with yeah beer. exactly i liked yeah. it better when it was six days old sorry <laughs> i know it makes yeah. a lot of sense, man. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's do uh, this. Let's take a quick break. It's our last break. We're going to come back. I have a couple more questions from the chat, and uh, you know, we'll get in some other cool topics, and we'll wrap it up here on the session. Hold on, everybody. We'll be right back. Segmented. Demented. Fermented. Fermented. It's the session. Yes! Yes! All right. Thanks for hanging around, everybody. It's the session. We're wrapping it up here with Dave McQueen from Admiral. Malting. I do have a couple uh, questions from the chat, uh, Dave. Peter Simons, our friend in Australia, says, uh, how much does the barley variety influence the malt and flavor? And he spelled flavor with a U. So that's I can his... still answer that. Yeah, okay. All right, good. Which one sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. I think the short answer is it matters more than we've all previously thought. Um, variety has historically been more of a conversation between the maltster and the farmer. And it's really been more for agronomic purposes, you know, like what grows best, what's going to yield well and be the lowest risk in terms of 
susceptibility to diseases and pests that might that farmer might face in that area. Um, and so, you know, as long as it worked in the malt house to produce good malt, um, it wasn't really the within the realm of the brewer's conversation or awareness even, you know, I mean, awareness for sure, but not necessarily like, you know, you didn't get to, you didn't get to try out a lot of different varieties. You, you, you know, you would use the malt that the maltster found worked best working with the farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as long as it made good malt and made good beer, you'd be happy with it. And, you know, like the few exceptions are the, are, you know, varieties that are almost, that are brand names now, right? Like Marisotter. That's, you know, Marisotter is a variety. It's just that, Everybody makes a, you know, the, the makers of all the Marisotter pale ale malts. They're making a pale ale malt style uh, with Marisotter, but Marisotter is a variety. That's like one of the, that's an, kind of an exception though, right? That's one of the few cases where a variety starts to dominate the conversation as like, oh, I want that, you know. Um, outside of that, it's been more about, you know, agronomy and and, and the relationships between the farmer and the, and the maltster. Um, but um, you know, an exa- the best example I can come up with is, is one of our own, which is that, you know, we make uh, two uh, English style, English influenced pale ale malts. You know, one is Gallagher's Best and the other is Maiden Voyage. Um, currently, Maiden Voyage is only available in a certified organic format and, and Gallagher's Best in a, um, a, a conventional format. M- much of it grown uh, using a sustainable method called no-till. But um, but I digress. Go ahead. I am digressing. But uh, the, the point is, they're both pale ale malts uh, that go through an identical kilning profile, right? So the, so the temperature program and humidity program in the kiln um, is the same for both. And and so every, everything is the same except the variety, right? Okay. So um, Gallagher's Best is made with the Butta 12 that Lynn Gallagher developed at UC Davis, which is why we named it after him. Um, and uh, Maiden's Voyage is made with Copeland, which is a more tried and true established variety that, that people have been using for the last 20 years or so. Um, and so it's a great example. If you, if you get some Gallagher's Best and you get some Maiden Voyage and you do a little side-by-side, you chew it, um, you ideally do a hot steep, um, you're going to get slightly different flavors. And, the, and now knowing that all the other things have been held constant, like the, those flavors are coming from the varietal differences and the way that the steeping and the germination are slightly subtly different uh, from one variety to another. You know, one variety might uh, require a little bit longer steep cycle or a little more, you know, need to get up to a slightly higher moisture content to germinate really well or, or you know, to overcome, you know, some level of dormancy that it's got. So uh, the behavior in the mall house is going to be a little different throughout the process. And then that's going to set up some building blocks for the final step, the kilning, um, how different things are developed along the first two steps, steeping and germinating, um, plays out in the kiln as like where those flavors, you know, like how those, how that manifests as like flavor A versus flavor B. But you can have these two different uh, barley varieties, kiln them the very same way. And you can end up with two similar, like kind of malt, cousins if not siblings um but they're definitely different and you could use them differently and have different flavors in your beer and so i guess the answer is you know variety makes more of a different than difference than previously thought um we're just starting to scratch the surface of that um okay. because now we're starting to you know craft maltsters in general we're starting to like revive some heirloom varieties and play around with new varieties like we are and so 
it's just now at the beginning stages of this, this sort of discovery process of like, hmm, what variety do I like? Does this one variety help me make a beer that's closer to my idea for that beer than this other variety? I mean, like, I, mm. I think it's just that's new territory. That's like a place where craft malt will go. But um, that sounds fun. I've, I've seen that in the like the craft distilling world with like heirloom corn. Mm-hmm. You know, you're starting to see a lot of people do that totally. too. So yeah, that that seems like a fun, a fun little place for a lot of brews to play around with new kind of malts and and uh, you know, presumably maybe new ways to malt them. Although I don't know how how different it's going to be with different varieties. So I, you know, I don't know. A lot of opportunity for experimentation. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and then uh, Peter uh, asks, is it best to call ahead to the rake before visiting, or can hmm. you just drop by? At this point. I mean, it depends on what changes happen in the next week or two weeks. <laughs> yeah, or dude. Month. But every time we think we know what we're doing, you know, something, some new, new thing happens. Um, new thing, new thing. Yeah, it's all back to the pivoting. Um, <laughs> right now, you can just come and and be, you know, just show meet, up, see the host, and and or, or see, you know, be shown a table. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so yeah. You know, uh, if you're ordering malt to go by the bag only, which is all we're selling right now, um, mm-hmm. you got to order that ahead so that we can pull it from the warehouse and have it ready. But okay. if you're just coming to drink beer and eat food, um, you can just come during our business hours, and that's where we're at right now. Nice. Okay. And then we were talking before the show. You you not only sell to 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 breweries and distilleries, but to homebrew shops as well. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So you homebrewers out there, you can be on the lookout for Admiral Malt, and then if your homebrew shop doesn't carry it, I imagine ask them. You can ask them to contact Dave. Please do. Yes. Yeah. I think everybody, uh, you know, I'm not going to say everybody would benefit from using it, but like I'm going to say, anybody that's <laughs> interested in the, where their malt comes from, uh, at any level, whatever size batch of beer you're making, from yeah. 100 barrels down to you know five gallons or less, um, it's like it's a fun thing to play around with. You know, yeah. It's a fun thing to experiment with. So, um, yeah, we're grateful to the homebrew shops uh, like Oak Barrel that uh, the carrier malt and um, any will work with any homebrew shop that wants to bring it in. So, if your local homebrew shop doesn't have it and they want to work with us, and uh, we'll we'll make it happen. Nice. And you said more beer carries it too, right? Yeah. Yeah, they're a sponsor of the of the, of the show here. So, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, but you mentioned Oak Barrel. Um, just real fast before we, we let you go, uh, you have a, a nice little connection to Oak Barrel, right? Bernie, who was the former owner of Oak Barrel, sold uh, the business there. And we've had Homer on, I think, twice now. Uh, can't, get, can't find a better dude. He's uh, a good guy. In general, but <clears throat> especially in homebrewing. But uh, apparently your girlfriend now owns the Oak Barrel. Yes. That's cool, Stacey, man. Who's over there. Nice. I'm going to beckon her over here. <laughs> uh, That's great. How, how is that, uh, you know, having a homebrew shop in your, in your uh, you know, pretty awesome. little general I'm orbit there? Say hi, Stacy. Yeah. Hi, hi Stacy. Hey. Hey, guys. We're just, we're just talking about the Oak Barrel. We both love it and uh, just wanted to mention it real fast. That's all. It's pretty rad. Yeah. It's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Good luck you. with it. Thanks so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. See you later. Okay. <laughs> um yeah right. i'm, it's, I'm it's glad super cool because yeah. like as sean will attest i mean so many of us so long ago got turned on to brewing and learning how to brew probably from homer 
Yeah, it was yeah. Homer, and yeah, just uh, all of a lot of us went through those doors and got turned on to you know home brewing, like you said, and became went on to become professional brewers. I mean, there's a whole lot of us. There's like I mean, there's, there's, you there know, should be a Arnie, list out there somewhere. Christian. I mean, there's so many people. Yeah, you can yeah. rattle off this list, and 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 yeah. a lot of for a lot of people, it comes back to here for me for sure. You know, yeah. oh, here comes Homer. Uh oh. Oh, oh no, there he is, the man, the myth, the legend. Trouble now. You got to come in. Hey, Homer. <laughs> What's up, right. man? Oh, look, Sully JP, what's happening? What's up? You're looking a little wider, uh, uh on you know, on the sides oh, of your right, head there, right. man. What's going on? That's not there in the middle. That's wisdom. That's a fact. Can't get away from it. See me and Dave, we're brothers. We're brothers now. <laughs> That's right. The white, That's the right, white man. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we have it all. We're in the white hair club. That's right. You got that right. Yeah. How you doing, man? You holding up? Oh, living, living good. Yeah. You look great. You look good, man. Surviving, that's all I can say. That's all you got to do, man. <laughs> that's all we got to do. Thank you, guys. Sir. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Homer. It's good seeing you, man. Oh, that's... which is mine. Peace out. So awesome <laughs> to see you, Homer. Peace. Oh, Take care, buddy. <laughs> see you soon. Sully, Sully just stays in trouble. Look at always. He has that trouble look on his face. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'll yeah. take that. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take really? That. That's for me? <laughs> Homer brought me whiskey. Oh, <laughs> Homer nice. does that. You hang out there long enough. He's either he's make, he's, well, he's, I got one for them also. Oh, he's got some for you. <laughs> okay. I love he's it. Smoking meats and uh he'll hand you a whiskey. Man. Wow, all right. So Gotta that, get out there. There you go. Life. You're ready for your show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's great. I mean, like I I that's cool. I go man. back to like nineteen ninety-two coming in here, ninety-one. Yeah. And I, I sit here and look around. I'm like, what am I doing in here right now? Like, yeah, it's crazy. A little time warp. Yeah, you're, you're like Way behind the scenes work. now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, e- even coming from like from from more beer where I used to work, uh, you know, we would talk to Bernie a lot about you know running homebrew shops, and we were very he was very uh, you know open and and uh, you know willing to to support us, and uh, and vice versa. And so I'm I'm glad that think, the that the you know the Oak Barrel is staying within uh, within the beer community and uh, it's, yeah, it's still think, thriving. You know, I, it's, know, it's great. I think that. Uh, Bernie's family was nudging him toward like, Hey, maybe it's you know, time to go. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it, and you know, it's well, been a long run. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, who knows what could have happened here, um, with, with somebody with that, you know, with the person moving on like that. But, um, no, when Stacy's an avid home brewer, she's been doing it for a long time. She's no slouch. Yeah. She started the Fairfax home brewers club in mm-hmm. Fairfax, Marin County. Oh, and, right on. Um, and so she's, yeah, she's an avid home brewer and that's why she bought the business from Bernie. That's and great. so, uh, I think it, and he wasn't the first owner, right? There was somebody uh, before yep. before Bernie in the '80s, and so she's the third person to come in here and like shepherd the store through its its life. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. rad. Yeah. Dave, thanks for your time, man. I really appreciate it. You guys can learn more about Admiral Maltings. Go to AdmiralMaltings.com, and there you can find information on the Rake Pub and uh, you know their whole product guide and all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, if you're out in Alameda. The island of Alameda. Be sure to hit up the rake and uh, try some of these beers and check out what's going on. I haven't been out there yet. I definitely want to get out there uh, it, even more now Bye. because it sounds great. Just looking at that beer list, great I don't, space. I don't know Amazing if I'll leave. Space. You know, uh, I don't think I can. I You've can got go. all the loggers you need. Oh my god, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We'll put that to the test. <laughs> I need a lot of loggers, man. All right. All right. Yeah, Dave. Thanks Thank a you. lot. Appreciate it, Sully. Thank you Thanks. very much, man, for Always uh, a pleasure. for hanging out. Everybody in the chat, thank you very much. Oh, my God, Andy Wood just popped in the chat. Andy uh, Wood. He just says, he says, I still have an old school Magnolia shirt. 
Nice. Uh, love it. And Dave and Sean is my big brother. <laughs> so there's that. And then actually, you know what? I wanted to, to mention real fast, Dave. I was reading an article uh, talking about Magnolia and whatever. And uh, I didn't know this, but in the 70s, the, the, the Magnolia pub on Haight-Nashbury was an, uh, an erotic ice cream parlor. It was the late 60s, late I think 60s, into okay. 1970. Okay. And it was called Magnolia Thunderpussies. <laughs> and and uh, named, uh, eponymous, eponymously named, it was uh, the woman that ran it was Magnolia Thunderpussy. Oh, my and God. So everybody that- assumes, rightfully so, that I named it after a dead song. But I also named it after Magnolia Thunderpussy because she was the person that ran the erotic dessert shop. It was a dead song. Is 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 the dead? It <laughs> was the dead song named after her as well. That's unclear. Okay. I mean, the song is Sugar Magnolia, and she was Magnolia and made sugary sweet desserts. So yeah, I bet she did, man. And they lived around the corner from her on Ashbury Street. So. Right. So you got to think it for could sure. All, it could all fit together. Yes. An erotic ice cream parlor, man. So I'm, she had a. When can I that mean, pendulum I swing back? Say this on, on the air, right? Yeah. She had a. I mean, I have an old menu that people, a couple of people brought in. She had the pineapple pussy and the Montana banana. <laughs> These were the two signature desserts. God damn it! And they're they're described on the menu that I have from like circa 1968, and um, and they are anatomically correct desserts. And the <laughs> thing, her thing was, she served them without utensils. Oh, <laughs> God. Yeah, we need that pendulum to come back that way. I mean, come on. So, so that's all you need to know about the old days of that spot at Hayden Masonic. I love it. I love it. All right, Dave, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, we'll see you guys later. Thanks Thank a lot. Take care. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.